Okay, I've been preaching a little bit long this summer. I've noticed that my, my uh, recordings are going a little long, and, and I don't know, I get all lathered up up here, and I'm in, I'm just like, you know, it's like two a days football practice or something, and I'm just ready to hit, I'm ready to go, and, uh, but uh, now I'm going to try to control myself, although I'm not making any promises um, tonight. Uh, yes, yes. Um, did I do this? Yes, I did this. Um, I was eating some watermelon with Karen the other day, and uh, how many of you like watermelon? Anybody? Oh, good. <laughs> we got a devoted group, and uh, you know, I was looking at how vibrantly red the meat was, and I was admiring the packaging. You know, it was just the packaging was perfect, and and then the the rind was was just a perfect green, and uh, it was just so watery and juicy and delicious and then it happened you know what happened right huh <laughs> no, I, I didn't I didn't buy a seat it escalated into a full-blown theological encounter okay now how many of you have done that when you eat a melon hopefully some of you have these times in your life when you're just minding your own business you're just doing something normal and average, and boom, you feel God. And you get this sense of His presence very unexpectedly. Uh, had a God encounter over that watermelon. Now I know most of mankind would confidently assert that that watermelon, uh, just like you and me, was a random chance event. It just happened. It just popped into existence out of a void it just happened. I know that most of mankind now actually, I know it's logically and rationally impossible, but this is what men believe now. That everything we see, it came out of nothing. And it was just some cosmic, cataclysmic chance event. And it just happened. It just happened. Romans 1.22. When I hear men talk like this, I always think of Romans 1.22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They became fools. I always liked what R.C. Sproul said about the religion of naturalism, its principal tenet of faith being Darwinism, macro-Darwinism. Sproul said, it's like a rabbit out of a hat, right? Without the rabbit, without the hat, without what? A magician. I always loved that quote. I thought that, was, I thought that was perfect. I thought that was perfect. So as I eat that melon, I instinctively, intuitively, logically, rationally, and spiritually knew that melon was from the hand of God. I knew it. It was too beautiful. It was too perfect. It was too delicious to have just popped into existence out of nowhere. I don't believe in magic, particularly without a magician. I just simply don't believe in magic. So as I savored this, this melon and admired how ingeniously it was packaged, I just thought, what a great idea, God, and I just worship. Now, does this happen in your life, or is this just what happens in a preacher's life? I hope this happens in your life, too. You know, just those unexpected moments of, man, my God is awesome. Look at this melon. Right? I mean, this happens to me on occasion. 
And I was, I was A.W. Pink's words were, were like ringing in my ears, this great quote of his, God not only gives us senses, but He gives us what gratifies them. Don't you love that quote? That's how good He is. That's how awesome He is. And I know what you're saying, like you always say on most of my introductions, what's this got to do with anything in James chapter 4, 11, and 12? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. Uh, particularly if you look at the immediate context here, the verses preceding verses 11 and 12 and the verses right after uh, verses 11 and 12. I think there's a, there's a flow here, and this is the point that I want to try to make. James is still talking about the wisdom that comes from above. He's still referencing that. You may recall we talked about that several weeks ago over in James chapter 3, verse 17. And as we talked about that, we talked that uh, what is the beginning of wisdom? Remember? What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, Psalm 111.10. And I just want to interject this real quickly, and then I'm going to get to the text. But uh, whenever I think of, whenever I think of uh, the fear of the Lord, I'm always reminded of Exodus 19 and 20. And you remember the Lord came down on Mount Sinai with, with thunder and lightning and thick smoke and the mountain quaked violently, and the people trembled. And I think, yeah, the the Hebrew passage actually says that Moses too was full of fear and trembling. And the people begged that God would speak no more to them. Basically what they said is, Moses, you go talk to Him. We don't want to hear Him anymore. He's too fearsome. I love that verse. I love those texts in Exodus. And I love how Moses explains the fear of the Lord. And I just want to share this with you. I think this is perfect. I think this is perfect. Exodus 20, 20. Moses says, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that you uh, that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Did you hear what Moses said? Don't be afraid but fear the Lord. You get that? Don't be afraid, but fear the Lord that you may not sin. I love that. I think that's, I think that's perfect. The second thing in this flow of, that we're covering tonight, the second thing that James is still talking about, he's talking about God-pleasing humility that we talked uh, in great detail about last week. James chapter 4, verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace He gives grace to the humble. We talked about it last week. God-pleasing humility is fleshed out there in verses 7 through 10. We're to submit to God. We're to draw near to God. We're to repent of our sin. And we're to humble ourselves before God. We're to humble ourselves before God. See, all this happens when I eat a watermelon. Okay? Listen, I want to, I want to encourage you to, to see the fingerprint of God in your, in your ordinary life, right? And you just, the average stuff. I want you to be on the lookout for the fingerprint of God. The title of my sermon, which I don't often share with you, is Awe and Humility. And I love, Adam did such a great job picking out the songs. Because it was big God stuff, right? And that's, that's really the title of my sermon. Awe and humility. And we'll never truly 
uh, enter into the humility that God has called us into unless we've entered into genuine awe of Jehovah Creator God. And those are the two points that I want to try to communicate tonight. Moses is right. As we ponder God, we should not be afraid, but we should fear Him that we would not be cavalier in our sin. I think this is a big part of what James is saying to us. He's reminding us that bad theology hurts people. And he's reminding us to think correctly about God. And only as we think correctly about God will we think correctly about our brothers. And will we think correctly about our sin. And will we think correctly about, uh, about the law. And will we think correctly about the things we say. Only if we are in awe of the God who makes Mount Sinai uh, quake violently, will we behave rightly <laughs> in the world? And will we relate properly with God's people? That's the sermon. Awe and humility. And I think this is the message that God has for us tonight. James has been Just a brief review, James has been telling us all the way through the Gospel that real Christians are peculiar and conspicuous. That's what we are. We're radically different from the world, and James just keeps talking about that. Um, we are conspicuous just as by way of review in the way we respond to our trials and temptations, the way we respond to the Word of God. I said it to you last week. We don't just hear it. We don't just talk about it. We what? We do it. That's what real Christians do. We do it. We do the Word of God. Uh, the world can see that we belong to Him in the way that we deal with others. The way we guard our speech. The way we actually live out our faith. Our faith is tangible and palpable. It can be seen in the life. The way we live by the wisdom of God. We uh, don't live by the wisdom of the world, but by the wisdom of God. And how we submit and humble ourselves to this awesome God. So we are a conspicuous lot. We are a peculiar lot. We are strangers, aliens, exiles, and pilgrims. We are in the world, but we are not, what? Of the world. Let me ask you, Christian friend, is that how you're living? Because that's, what we're, that's how we're supposed to be living, right? That's how we're supposed to be living. And James has made the case that that's who we are in Christ Jesus. So let me reread the text for us. Verses 11 and 12 of James chapter 4, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Do you notice how many times God uses the word brother in verse 11? Somebody tell me how many times you see the word brethren or brother in verse 11. Three times. I mean, this is a not so subtle emphasis on the spiritual kinship we are to have in the body of Christ. I mean, this is a, no subliminal message. This is about as blunt as it can be. He's talking about how we relate to our brothers. And again, this is something we saw and we've talked about in great detail when we were in the Gospel of John. 
Jesus, you know, we know that the law tells us that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, but Jesus takes it a lot further for the believer. The believer is to love his fellow believer to what degree? As Jesus has loved us, which is infinitely above the law of loving our neighbor as ourself. We saw in 1 John uh, last year or so that John tells us in John 3.16 that we're to lay our lives down for the brethren. Again, principally, that's not talking about martyrdom. That's talking about laying our lives down in the body as we love and serve one another. So this, there's this divine standard of how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And we've talked about that quite a bit last, uh, last fall. But God calls His children to a life of radical love and radical service. Friends, that's what we're called to be as Christians. To radically love each other and radically serve one another. Yeah, maybe some of you could show up and help Debbie and Keith move this week, you know? I mean, you know, inconvenient love, expensive love, that's what we're called to do. We're called to love one another. Jesus says, as I have loved you. It's impossible humanly, but this is the call that we have from the Lord. It's Christianity 101. And I know, I've known so many Christians in my life that have never yet learned Christianity 101. Love and serve your brothers. You know, if you've, if you've not learned that yet, you need to just stop and go back to the beginning. That's the beginning. Once you come to Christ, to learn to love and serve your brothers and your sisters. And of course, in conjunction with this divine standard of loving one another, of course we're not to speak against a brother, as James says here in chapter 4, verse 11. Now the first thing I want to say, what I want to say to you is, I want to tell you what God is not saying before we talk about what God is saying, okay? What God is not saying. And, and so we get a good handle on that. I'm going to read to you from the New King James Version and the ESV and the NIV. They make it a little more clear than the NAS, which is what I read out of, because the, my text says, uh, do not speak against one another. Well, that is a little bit ambiguous, but if you go to these other English translations, it says this, do not speak evil of one another. I think that makes it a little more clear. And the NIV actually says, do not slander one another. I think that brings a little more clarity to it. God is commanding us not to speak evil of a brother, nor to slander a brother. God is not saying uh, that we should not call sin, sin, and confront it. That's not what God is saying in this verse. James chapter 4, verse 11 does not negate Matthew 18, which is Jesus' teaching on church discipline. Yes, I said church discipline, the sermon you're most likely to never hear in the modern church. James 4.11 does not negate Matthew 18. And I'm just going to read to you from Matthew 18 so you have a, a good understanding of, of what that says. Or you can be reminded of what that says. Probably never heard it preached. Um, how many of you have been in a church that practices church discipline? Okay, a couple, that's good. It's better than zero. 
Okay. Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 15, and if your brother sins, you go and reprove him. This is not what James 4.11 is talking about. Jesus says you go reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I want you to understand, James 4.11 is not negating this command to practice church discipline and to love one another enough to go to one another and rebuke one another when a sin has become public. That's not what James is saying here. Jesus says, you take it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. This is the command of Jesus. We practice church discipline. We love our brothers and sisters enough to confront them in their sin. I just want to make sure we make that distinction. That's true love. You know, we had a situation in this church some time back where we were seriously considering church discipline. We were praying earnestly about that. The leadership of the church was. But it became moot because the individual left the church. But what I want to say to you, brethren, the leadership of this church will love you enough to discipline you. We will. If, if you enter to sin and it becomes public and, we, and, and the leadership knows about it, we'll come to you. And you should be doing this between one another. We're to love one another as Jesus loved us. And Jesus always, He always points out our sin. Right? So I just want to make sure we understand that James 4.11 is not negating the injunction of Matthew 18. And parenthetically, I want to say that, I want to say that uh, Matthew 7.1 does not negate Matthew 18. Matthew 7.1, some of you may remember this. And this is all, all, many times say, well, we can't practice discipline. That's wrong. Judge not, lest you be judged. How many times have you heard that? Oh, we can't call sin, sin. We can't clearly say that that's wrong and that's a sin and that person is in sin, that's judging. We don't want to judge lest we, we be judged. But that's just sloppy interpretation. Jesus is talking there about the Pharisees condemning people, which only God can do. God is the only one that has the authority to eternally condemn. That's not our job. We don't condemn our brothers. We don't condemn anyone. But we do call sin, sin. Why? Because we love men whether they're in the church or out of the church. We're called to love men. And so we call sin, sin. It's with a view to redemption. Church discipline is always with a view to redemption that the sinner might repent. That the sinner might repent. So Jesus does not command us... Uh, he's not saying that we can't call sin, sin. And James 4, 11 and 12 is not negating that command. So I just want to make that clear. Uh, in James 4.11, God is saying Christians do not defame or slander one another. That's simply the message here. You know, if you just take a look at secular law, unbelievers understand this. I mean, if you look at secular law, it's against the law in most uh, countries to defame someone or to slander someone. 
I mean, it's against natural man's law. So how much more heinous would it be in the eyes of God for His children to be slandering or defaming one another? We know that God hates all sin, but apparently God really hates this sin. You know that, that, uh, that text in Proverbs 6, you know the seven things that God hates? You ever, you ever looked at that text? Three of them have to do with how you speak about others. You ever notice that? One of them is, it's God hates a lying tongue. He hates that. God hates a false witness who utters lies. God hates one who spreads strife among brothers. Wow, three out of the seven. Three out of the seven. God hates defamation. He hates slander. He hates gossip. And He hates backbiting. You know, James talks about the tongue several times. And this is just another chapter in his instruction to us. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we, we were in James 3, 6, 6, and we talked about the tongue, and I shared with you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, and I love it. I'm going to share it with you again. Eugene Peterson, uh, in the message, his paraphrase of James 3, 6, listen to this. By our speech, we can ruin the world. You know, when you first read that, you go, that's, that's hyperbole. That's got to be hyperbole, right? He goes on and he says, we can turn harmony into chaos. We can send the whole world up in smoke, smoke right from the pit of hell. And you, you read that and you go, man, that's, her, that's hyperbole. But no, it's biblical. It's biblical. What is the quintessential example and illustration from the Bible uh, that illustrates that truth? Oh, Satan slandered God and, oh, Eve believed it. There it is. There it is. It's right at the beginning. Satan slandered God's character, God's word, God's motives, God's law. And, oh, Eve believed it. It all started with slander. It all started with defamation. Satan, the father of lies, as Jesus called him, he told the whopper in the garden and he transformed Eden into this fallen world that you and I are living in. Why is the world so messed up? Defamation of character. Satan told a lie about God and we all believed it. I think maybe, as I, as I studied this week, I began to understand why God talks about this so much and why he hates it so much. Oh, Guess what else happened? At the, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they brought what? False witnesses against the Son of God. Again, God is slandered. And this time, God ends up on the cross. Oh, guess what else? Revelation 12.10. Satan is slandering you and me right now. Right? You know the text? He accuses us before God day and night. Slander and defamation is demonic. It's from Satan. It comes out of the pit of hell. And God is saying, don't you dare. None of my kids live like that. None of my kids talk like that. It's demonic. It is demonic. Jesus said, it's flowing right out of the fallen heart of man. Matthew 15, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. This is a big deal with God. This is a huge deal with God. Scripture tells us the havoc 
wrought by defamation and slander. Proverbs 6.19, it creates discord among the brethren. Proverbs 16.28, it destroys relationships. Proverbs 26.20, it leads inevitably to contention and conflict. You get some sense why three out of the top seven sins God says He explicitly hates has to do with the tongue and the words we speak? Are you getting some sense of the gravity? You know, I, I told you when we were in James 3 that it's like, you know, gossip is almost like, it's like in the church, it's almost viewed as some kind of second tier sin that, yeah, we know we shouldn't do it, but it's not a big deal. No, nobody's, nobody's really going to get hurt wrong. It is a big deal. It is a big deal to God. I shared with you, and I want to share with you again, that, uh, you know, over Romans 1, when God's talking about the total depravity of mankind, He's talking about homosexuality and wickedness and greed and murder and strife and deceit and malice and arrogance, inventors of evil and haters of God. And he says, they are gossips and they are slanderers. This is how big a deal it is with God. And I shared with you then, I will share with you again, uh, that great text over in 2 Timothy when Paul's warning Timothy about the end times and all the sin that will manifest itself. He's talking about how men will be lovers of self and money and they'll be boastful, arrogant, revilers, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, oh yes, and malicious gossips. Am I making my point? <laughs> Don't speak against your brother. Don't do it. Man, if, it comes in, if the thought comes in your head, you get rid of it. Don't do it. Don't speak against don't speak evil and don't slander your brother or your sister. God says, my kids, utterly abstain from this kind of activity. I love what MacArthur says, John MacArthur. He says, it's a breach of humility and a breach of love. I think that's perfect. To speak against a brother or sister in the body of Christ, to slander them, to speak evil against them, it's a breach of humility, one, and it's a breach of love. Perfect. I think that's perfect. Here's what God says. Here's, God says, this is how my kids are supposed to use their tongue. Ephesians 4, 29-32. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't you love that? Our words are to impart grace. They're to impart grace. I love that. That's perfect. And he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you uh, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. What a beautiful verse. What a beautiful text. God says, This is, uh, this is how we're supposed to do it. This is how we're supposed to live in the body. And so what, is, what does James mean when he, when he here in verse 11 here at the end? He says, He who speaks against or judges, that is, condemns a brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of it, but a judge of it. What is James saying? It's very simple. If you're condemning your brother, if you're speaking evil against your brother, if you're slandering your brother, you're basically saying, I don't care what God's Word says. 
I don't care what the awesome creator consuming fire God says. It's, it's, put, it's like all sin. You're putting yourself above the law. You're, ju- you're judging the law unworthy to submit to. You're, you're saying I'm above it. I'm superior to it. You're saying actually I don't care what it says. And so that's all James is saying there. And so by your deeds you're revealing that uh, you don't care what God's Word says. And by your deeds you slander and judge the law of God. It's refusing to live by the wisdom of God and it's refusing to submit and be humble before God. This is the whole flow of the thought of James in this section. The whole flow that James is talking about. So the sin of defamation and slander, it reveals our hearts. And what we really think, what we really think about others, what we really think about the law, and most importantly, what we really think about God. So if we're not guarding our tongues, if we're just careless with our tongues, if we are in fact speaking evil against our brothers and sisters, we've just said a... We've just really, you remember the title of my sermon on James chapter 3, your tattletale heart. Your heart will always tell on you. <laughs> your heart will always tell on you. So, uh, if we're engaging in this kind of activity, it's telling how we view others, how we view the law, and how we view God. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? James is reminding us there are no vacancies in the Trinity. You got that? He's God. You're not. You never will be. Okay? There are no vacancies in the Trinity. In essence, James is saying, who do you think you are judging Again, we're not talking about church discipline. We're not talking about loving someone enough to confront them in their sin. That's not what we're talking about. But who are you to slander your brother? And who are you to condemn your brother? Who do you think you are? You're standing, you're putting yourself in the place of God. This is simply what the text is saying. It brings me back full circle to my watermelon theophany. How many of you know what a theophany is? Oh, it's a great theological word. It's one of those words, you know, you can't find in any human dictionary. You can only find it in like, you know, a theological dictionary. But a theophany is just a a physical manifestation, either visibly or audibly, of God. That's all it means. It's It's a manifestation. Now, truly, a watermelon is not a physical manifestation of God, right? But I knew... It was from Him. I knew it was from Him. And unless I believe in non-existent rabbits coming out of non-existent hats performed by non-existent magicians, I logically have to arrive at a first cause as, as philosophers talk about, the first cause, the, the uncaused cause, the, the, the uh, immovable mover all these goofy words that philosophers use, they're just talking about God. And unless I believe in magic, the fact that that watermelon is there and it's so awesome, it demands, it demands an awesome watermelon creating God. Amen? 
Or there's magic. There's magic in the cosmos. And stuff just happens for no reason. And it just appears for, for you know, with, without, any, without any cause or effect. My brain logically and rationally demands a first cause because nothing plus nobody can never equal everything. <laughs> it just can't. And hey, I'm, ta- I'm thinking about preaching a short series this, this fall. I'm really worked up on some of this stuff. Uh, on the creation account in Genesis. And we know how that's fallen into disfavor, unfortunately, even in the church. People are running, even evangelical preachers are running from the creation account. Well, hey, I may drive a stake in the ground and say, the International Church of Milan is not going to run from the creation account. We actually believe the creation account. Every word of the creation account. So we may talk about that this, this fall. A watermelon is not a theophany. It's not a physical manifestation of God, but it demands a God. And let me just paraphrase Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The watermelon is telling of the glory of God. It is declaring of the work of His hands. Is it not? Man, I can't wait till you have your next watermelon. Man, you're just going to have to get on your knees and praise God, right? You just are. The watermelon is a non-audible lecture of the logical necessity of God. Romans 1.20 His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that man is without excuse. So James is saying here in verse 12, not only are we supposed to know He's there, we are supposed to know that He alone is the judge and the lawgiver. He alone saves and He alone condemns. He is God. He is in charge of heaven and He is in charge of hell. He is alone the sovereign God. Deuteronomy 32.39 See now that I, I am He, God says, and there is no God beside Me. It is I who put to death and I who give life. It is I who wound and I who heal. There is no one who can deliver out of My hand. That's the biblical God. Jesus said, Fear not those who can kill the body, but rather fear Him, that being God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. James is talking about God-pleasing humility in this whole portion of Scripture. And it only starts when we get a right view of God. Moses said, Be not afraid, but what? Fear Him. And if we don't have that right view of God, if we don't have that biblical view of God, we're never going to be able to enter into God-pleasing humility. It's just not going to happen. That's the first place it has to happen. So James is calling us, Uh, to God-pleasing humility, to be humble before this awesome, fearsome, consuming fire. God, there is only one lawgiver, one judge, one who is able to save and one who is able to destroy. And only if we have a right view of Him will we view our brothers and sisters correctly. They are co Right? You know, if we just stop and think, they are co-heirs for whom Christ died. If we would stop and think about it, we would never even entertain the idea of slandering, slandering our brother, speaking evil 
against him. So I want to exhort you as I close tonight. I just want to exhort you to, as I did seven weeks ago when we were in James chapter 3, I want to exhort you to, to use your tongue in a sanctified way. To speak gracious words and kind words and loving words. True words, holy words, edifying words, sensitive words, gentle words, comforting words, unselfish words, peaceful words, words of blessing, words of humility, words of wisdom, and words of thanksgiving. God removing, pardon me, guilt removing, sin annihilating, and hell crushing words. I love that. That's how real Christians speak to one another. Christians who've submitted and humbled themselves before the great watermelon creating God. Jesus says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Let's pray together. Father, I'm sure probably every one of us in this room have been guilty of misusing our tongue. I pray that You uh, give us a burden about that, that You convict us about that, that we would speak wholesome words as the Ephesians 4 passage says, that we would edify and build up Father, we would speak words of grace. That our words would would just have grace raining down from them. That we would always be seeking to reconcile and seeking to, to, to encourage and seeking to come alongside. Father, help us to use our tongues in a way that honors an awesome Creator, consuming fire God. Father, may we... May we have that biblical view of You. That we're, we're not afraid, but we do fear You. That we might not sin. Father, from, because from that view of You flows all of our life and all of our conduct. Father, may we learn true awe that we would walk in true humility as You have commanded us. Lord, thank You for this great text. Thank You for reminding us that there is only one lawgiver and one judge. That You are the God who saves and the God who condemns. That's what You do. It's not our job. But You're the great ruling and reigning King. And we humbly bow before You this day. We humbly worship You. Thank You for this exhortation. Beautiful Lord Jesus. In Your name I pray. Amen.